0: Okay, we got a couple of announcements uh, that I can remember. Apparently, my announcement sheet's gone. We still have uh, people need to sign up for the emergency alert system so that you can be informed if there is a weather problem or some sort of emergency and we need to cancel class. That's the primary reason for doing that. Uh, we send out emails uh, and. Um, it's not always possible to contact people by phone, so if we can just send out a text message or email, so you need to sign up for this, and it's a real simple, uh, simple procedure. And we've sent out a couple of emails to remind people we haven't had a lot of people sign up, so that's why I'm encouraging you because there's always uh, seems like somebody slips through the cracks when something like this happened and we've had a cup one time this summer we had to cancel a midweek class. And we have, um, uh, we almost had to last week, so that's sort of, an, we've had some unusual unusual weather. Also, the boxes that are going to be sent over to with uh, supplies for Jim Meyer's ministry uh, need to be ready to go. And they, they ship th- this, uh, everything has to be in by this Sunday. And then what was the, there's another announcement, I think. Uh, men's prayer breakfast is the deacons meetings on the 23rd? 23rd? And the Logos uh, training webinar. You need to have Logos five on your four is pretty similar, but you need if you can upgrade to five and have that ready to go. But if you just have four, that'll work. They're very very similar, and the basics are pretty much the same for either one. So you need to let us know, and and it's also helpful if you let us know what your basic collection is, so that I can. Uh, uh, help work with those kinds of uh, kinds of things, and then uh, you need to send us your email address so that we can send you the contact information so that you'll be able to sign into the webinar uh, when we host it a week from uh, a week from Saturday on the sixteenth. I think that pretty much pretty much covers it. How shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy word? Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. Then I will open in prayer. Purpose of this is to give everyone the opportunity to make sure you are in fellowship and ready to focus on the Lord, and then uh, I will pray. So let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we're so thankful that you are the God of the universe, the sovereign God of creation who rules over the affairs of men and who is in control of uh, human history. We're thankful right now that there is this uh, ceasefire in Israel. We pray that you would give wisdom to the leaders who are involved in the negotiations, and we pray that Israel will be able to reach a conclusion that will keep them uh, safe and secure. Father, we pray for us as believers that we might have a faithful testimony in terms of our own, uh, vocal support for Israel, but that that might be more than simply a vocalized support. Father, we pray for us as believers that we might have a very visible testimony and vocal testimony to those around us in terms of our faith. And as we live in a world that is increasingly growing hostile to biblical truth and biblical Christianity, we pray that we might be strong and steadfast, that your the, the promises of your word to strengthen us and encourage us would be uh, ever more real to us, and that we might learn to keep our eyes upon you and not on the circumstances or the details of life. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. Tonight we're continuing our study on God's plan for the ages, looking at the distinctives of the church. Now, while everybody is uh, getting ready for this and focus on the word, I'm going to tell you a little bit about what I've been doing the last couple of days. I have been at a uh, APAC uh, Christian Leaders Summit that was actually held here in Houston, uh, down in Sugar Land, and so we started at 7:15 yesterday morning, and we went until 10 o'clock last night. We had a- at least two briefings that ran almost two hours, where the speaker spoke almost two hours straight without notes. One was giving us an in-depth understanding of what's been going on in Iran, and the other an in-depth analysis of what's going on in each of the countries surrounding uh, Israel. It's not a pretty picture. I'm not going to get into any of that tonight. We covered other things and over the next couple of weeks, I will bring out certain things and inform you of certain things. But we need to be focusing on the word and I'm not, haven't processed nearly everything. Went to, today it went from eight this morning until uh, one this afternoon. So this has been quite, quite intense, uh, quite an information dump. And not that a lot of it wasn't somewhat familiar, but a lot of it was, was uh, definitely new. And so it was very good. Israel is in a, as uh, always, in a precarious situation. They're good actors in the middle of a very, very bad neighborhood that is getting worse, uh, all the time. And right now the situation seems, um, at least there's a ceasefire, temporary ceasefire in place, and we'll see just what comes out of it. So far, as far as I've been able to tell. Uh, today that Hamas has not broken the ceasefire as they've broken six previous, uh, ceasefires. And so we'll just have to see what happens from this. But what is, what I think is a great vote of confidence for Israel, and I say this, uh, not only for those who are going on the trip to Israel that we have planned in November, but others, uh, I know there are other people who, who listen, and some who have people they know who go to go to Israel will go on these trips. Is that a delegation of U.S. congressmen uh, flew on an AIEF? That is an uh, American Israel Education Fund. That's the uh, edu- sort of an Associated uh, Education uh, Foundation uh, that APAC has. That's what I went on a year ago. One of their sponsored trips. So about 20 or so U.S. congressmen left yesterday to go to Israel on a, an APEC, APEC trip. One of the uh, people that was at the conference daughter left a year ago to go on a, uh, uh, another trip to, uh, to Israel. So, there are a number of people are going. There was a contingent of American pastors, one from each state in the union plus washington d c who went with Christians United for israel uh, today so there 's a great show of support and strength and The one industry that has been that 's their number one industry and that 's impacted their economy the most during the the last month has been the tourist industry, and it is really taking. Uh, taking a major hit. They've lost millions, if not billions, of dollars uh, just in the last, uh, uh, not only in the last five weeks, but because a lot of people get skittish that they can't, they start canceling trips in September, October, November, and whatever. So, uh, that's just sort of a brief update. And starting, uh, probably Thursday night, I'll give little snippets of information. I'll also post some information on the uh, Dean Bible Ministry uh, Facebook page. All right. We have been looking at the, uh, the The whole of god's plan for the age is looking at each of the dispensations, and we look at each of the dispensation we 've been talking about the various characteristics of each dispensation. And two weeks ago, two lessons back, we came to the topic of the parameters of the church age. When does the church age begin and when does the church age end? Now, you may think, well, that's pretty obvious to me, but we need to understand what the Bible says and what the implications are from that. And one of the significant factors that we saw is has to do with when the church begins and why we say it begins that day. It's that characteristics that's so important. So the church began on the day of Pentecost, A.D., uh, 33, this is described in Acts 2. Well, what was it that happened on that day? Uh, what happened on that day was that God the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the apostles. As the leaders of this new entity that was described as the church. In Acts one five, Jesus predicts that this is still future. In First Corinthians twelve, thirteen, it is described as something that by Paul that is true for every believer. In Acts chapter eleven, verses five uh fifteen or excuse me, five through seventeen, it is seen by by Peter as something that happened an outpouring of the Holy Spirit to the Gentiles and the household of, of, Corinth, of uh, Cornelius. And when Peter described it, he said this was exactly what happened to us at the beginning. That's such a key phrase, showing that that the church began uh in on the day of Pentecost it didn't begin with Adam it didn't begin with Abraham it didn't begin with Moses there is a clear distinction between uh between Israel and the church this is what distinguishes dispensationalism from all of the viewpoints now one thing that was interesting at this uh Christian leadership conference at APAC there was a man there that I had uh, not met before there were just about 10 of us that w- that were uh invited to this and this particular man was pretty, had an interesting background. I didn't get all of it. He was, uh, prior special forces, career military. Uh, now he lives in Fort Worth and he goes to a PCA church. For those of you who aren't, uh, <clears throat> alphabetically inclined in terms of American denominations, that's the Presbyterian Church of America. That is different from the, uh, Presbyterian Church USA. Presbyterian Church at USA is the liberal United Presbyterian Church that was the result of the uh, realignment of the Northern and Southern Presbyteries that happened back in the 1980s, but and they're they're very liberal, and it was Presbyterian Church USA that voted to divest themselves of any investments in in anything related to uh, to Israel. They clearly are taking anti-Semitic pol- uh, policy, making anti-Semitic policy decisions, but P- PCA and OPC, which is the uh, Orthodox Presbyterian Church, came out of uh, the liberal Presbyterian denominations in the 30s, 40s, 50s. I don't know the exact beginning of these, each of these organizations. But they do. They are very Calvinistic. They do hold to five-point Calvinism. They do believe in covenant theology. And they do believe uh, in either amillennialism or post post-millen- postmillennialism as their official doctrinal position, uh, I had one a PCA pastor uh, confide in me that probably one of the most um, uh, best kept secrets in the PCA is half the people in their congregations are pro-Israel and premillennial, but that's not their official doctrinal position. But what was interesting about this guy, coming from a PCA view and a background, everybody else in the group. When they were asked about, well, why do you support Israel? They would go to the Abrahamic covenant, but he didn't go to the Abrahamic covenant and he doesn't know why he doesn't go to the Abrahamic covenant. The reason he supports Israel would be for this secular reasons. Israel's a democracy. It's the right thing to do and all the other things that, that we benefit from between in the alliance between the U.S. and Israel. But the reality is, is that in the theology of his uh, denomination in his branch of Christianity, they believe that the church replaced Israel in terms of the Abrahamic covenant. It's not an ongoing thing. Now, they don't take that to a position. Just because you hold to that view doesn't mean you end up in an anti-Israel, anti-Zionist um, uh, position. But it historically, that position of amillennialism and covenant theology that the church replaces Israel that historically, that has been a a, a seed bed out of which uh, anti-Semitism has grown. It doesn't necessarily that weed doesn't necessarily grow in that flower bed, but that's the soil that produces it. So, it was just interesting to to hear that. It was an object lesson in how theology impacts decisions. Every everybody else was making their decision for a different reason. He came to the same, to a similar conclusion, but without a biblical basis for doing so. That just sort of stood out in the group. But that's because, in their view, the church began with Adam. In dispensationalism, there's, there's that distinction. So we saw that the church was yet future and not present when our Lord spoke in Matthew 18. He said he talks about the church in terms of something future that he will build. When he talked to Peter, he said I also say to you that you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church future tense. We studied through these passages last week Matthew 16, 18, and 19. The fourth point we saw in the parameters of the church age is that the church is said to be a mystery. It wasn't revealed in the Old Testament. It wasn't talked about in the Old Testament it was hidden in the Old Testament that's what mystery means it means something that was not yet revealed and we saw that and we looked at the various passages that talked about that uh, last week now that brings us up to uh, we looked at two other points as well that I don't have slides for the fifth point was that the kingdom was no mystery they knew about the kingdom So people who think that the kingdom and the church are somehow related as in amillennialism or uh, as in the amillennial view where the kingdom is a spiritual form of the kingdom, the, the, the church was a mystery. The kingdom was not a mystery. So that means that the church and the kingdom are not the same thing. And also the fact that Gentiles would be saved, that was the sixth point, that Gentiles would be saved is no mystery in the Old Testament. Gentiles were clearly saved in the Old Testament, but it's this new mystery, uh, part of the mystery doctrine, that Jew and Gentile would be equal in a new entity called the body of Christ. Now, we're moving forward. What are the distinctives of the church age? What makes this dispensation different from previous dispensations. Why are you as a church age believer different from a believer and, and the Old Testament? Different from, and your spiritual life is different from their spiritual life. And the, the, the principles that govern your spiritual life are different from the principles that govern their spiritual life. That the church age is distinctive. And, and one point I want to make here, is that this is not brought out by a lot of dispensationalism. The Dispensationalists, I'll talk about some distinctives, but when it comes to the spiritual life, they don't really develop that. And yet the reality is that our spiritual life finds its precedent in the spiritual life of the humanity of our Lord Jesus Christ and his walk on the earth, and his relationship to God the Holy Spirit, that he lived his spiritual life in his humanity not on the basis of his, his divine power, not on the basis of his omnipotence, omnipresence, or omniscience, but on the basis of his dependence upon God the Holy Spirit and his use of the Scriptures, just as we have God the Holy Spirit to depend on and just as we depend upon the Scriptures. So when he was tempted in the wilderness, he doesn't rely upon his omnipotence, his deity, to solve the problems of of thirst and hunger after 40 days of fasting. He is dependent upon the Scripture, and so when... Uh, he's tempted by the devil, he counters by the word of God. So that the spiritual life of the Lord Jesus Christ becomes the precedent for the church-age believer. So let's look at these distinctives. First of all, we have our union with Christ. We are united with Christ. We have passages like 2 Corinthians 5.17, which states, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. There is a, a, a newness here when we are identified with Christ and we be, enter into that, that union with Christ, everything becomes new. Now, there's no nothing comparable to being in Christ in the Old Testament. Now, in the second verse I have up there, 1 Corinthians 1-2, Paul addresses the church... In Corinth, in his opening, he says, To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. So, by being in Christ, we are set apart. There is this distinction that you and I have that we need to exploit that's related to our new identity, our new position in Christ. Now, this is what Paul goes to immediately in Romans chapter 6. Now we've studied Romans, all through Romans on Thursday night, and in Romans 6, 7, and 8, Paul is talking about our spiritual life. He completes the discussion on justification, and how, or how we become justified, and the consequences of that in Romans 5, and then he starts talking about what that means for our own spiritual life. And like I pointed out many, many times when we talk about Paul, he doesn't start on Uh, when, When somebody says, well, Paul, how do I live my Christian life? How am I going to grow and mature as a believer? Paul doesn't say, well, you do these five things. You read your Bible every morning. You pray every day. Uh, you memorize Scripture every day. He doesn't give these five simple points, which is common, and there's nothing wrong with those things. Those are important things that should characterize every believer's life. But that isn't how Paul addresses these things. He doesn't boil it down. He starts off with, okay, we're going to get into this really important foundational doctrine and this this reality that occurred in your life the moment you trusted in Christ as Savior. You didn't feel it. You didn't experience Experienced it. You probably weren't told about it, but nevertheless, it was an extremely real circumstance. And he says, Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now, he's not talking about water baptism here. He's talking about something that happens in the spiritual realm. The reality is what we talked about earlier, Matthew 3:11 John said that someone John the Baptist said that, some, that when the Messiah came after him that he would baptize by means of the Holy Spirit. In John in and, and Acts chapter 1 verse 5, Jesus still predicted the future baptism by the Holy Spirit. That is part of what occurred on the day of Pentecost. This is what distinguishes the church, From Israel, nobody in the Old Testament ever experienced the baptism by the Holy Spirit. Nobody during the life of Christ uh, experienced the baptism by the Holy Spirit. Guess what? Nobody in the tribulation is going to experience that. Now, there's some debate about that, and I'm going to deal with that when we get to the tribulation. And nobody... After that is going to do This is what is distinctive about being a church-age believer, and we have to think very precisely about this because of its implications in other areas. So Paul is saying that all of us were baptized into Christ, and the significance of baptism is identification. Uh, some people call this identification truth. That came out of a Keswick background, but it's a good term to use. It's identifi- that's this essence of, ident- uh, of the meaning of the word baptism. It has a literal meaning, which means to dip or to plunge or immerse, but it signified something. For example, in cl- the period of classical Greek, the uh, hoplites, the basic grunts in the, in the Greek army, after they finished basic training, they would take their uh, swords or their spears and they would bapto, they would immerse them into a bucket of, of blood, of usually some animal's blood. And this was a sign of identification. Now they are ready to go into war. It was an identification with their weapon, with, with death. So that's the significance of baptism. So we're identified with Christ in his death, Therefore, Paul says in verse 4, we were buried with him through baptism into death. There is a positional death that occurs. The instant we're identified with Christ, we become positionally dead. And then he goes on to say that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. When we we illustrate this, in water baptism, anybody who is water baptized is illustrating this principle. It's an object lesson that God has given us to teach an extremely abstract doctrine that is poorly understood in Christianity. And this is what we is referred to as positional truth. That just as in, the, in a spiritual reality we're identified with Christ in his death, We're buried with him in baptism, which is signified by being immersed in the water, and we come out of the water indicating that we are now in a position of newness of life. That becomes the foundation for Paul's argument in Romans 6 that we have to recognize that we are now dead to sin. That doesn't mean that we don't still have a sin nature. We still have a sin nature, but that sin nature is no longer the the tyrant it was before we were saved. That prior to salvation, there's only one option in anybody's life, and that is to be, to be controlled by their sin nature. But when you were saved... You're identified with the death of Christ so that that power of the sin nature is broken so that we can live. There's the potential now to live in newness of life. But Paul says in Romans 6, 11, that we have to reckon ourselves or consider ourselves to be dead in Christ. So there's a thought component there. We have to consider ourselves to be dead in Christ. So when we look at this graphically, We talk about the eternal realities that are true for every single believer, that at the instant that we trust in Christ, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, at that instant we are going to be placed in Christ, identified with him, through the baptism by the Holy Spirit. And this becomes our new position, our eternal reality that can never be lost. We become children of light, sons of light, the scripture says. That's why I describe this with a white circle. We become a child of, a son of God. We're a child of light. That's not our experience, but that is our new identity in Christ. So, The first distinctive of the church age is that every new believer is in union with Christ and united with him. Second thing that happens is not only are we in Christ, but Christ is now in us. Now, that never happened in the Old Testament. There was never any indwelling by any member of of the Trinity in a believer in the Old Testament in the same way that they are indwelt in in the New Testament. Now, there's a temporary filling, by the Spirit, filling of the Spirit in the Old Testament, but it's not the same. Don't confuse the two. We try to use different terminology to describe it. In the New Testament now, Jesus Christ uniquely indwells each and every believer, and this occurs from the instant that you trust in Christ as Savior. So not only are we in Christ, but Christ is in us. In John 14, 20... Uh Jesus says at that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. Now this is an important statement by by Jesus in the Gospel of John and it indicates a rel- relational reality that is totally new in human history. Never before has that taken place and notice that it is comparable the believer's relationship with Christ, Christ in us and we're in him, is compared to the, the tight fellowship between the Father and the Son. As the Son is in the Father, we are in the Son. Can you get your mind around that? That is the, a new reality. The intimacy that is ours positionally in Christ is completely new. In Colossians one twenty-seven, Paul says to them, "God will to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles." So this is this, this mystery doctrine I talked about already. See how we're building from the from something last time to something new this time on this mystery doctrine. It was previously unrevealed. Nobody knew about this in the Old Testament. Nobody knew about this during the uh, period of the uh, presence of the Messiah. Uh, in that dispensation. But now in the church age, uh, this is going to be revealed that Christ is in us, the hope of glory. Now you will find that some evangelicals will say that Christ is in us, this is referring to the Spirit of Christ. This is just a, another way of talking about the indwelling of God, the Holy Spirit. But it's very clear in these passages that, the, G, that, that Jesus in John 14.20 and Paul in Colossians 1.27 are making a distinction between the Holy Spirit and Jesus. This is, Jesus indwells each and every one of us. But so does the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit indwells every believer and we look at at several different passages this has never happened before in all of of uh, all of history in the old testament there were a few people that holy spirit came to came upon that the holy spirit gave wisdom to we think about one of the first examples would be uh Bezalel and Aholiab. uh names that you might want to use for a dog but i doubt that you might want to use them for your children but they're great names if you understand the Hebrew background of those names, but they were great men and they were craftsmen. They were the carpenters, they were the silversmiths, the goldsmiths, the metallurgists who worked on and designed the tabernacle. And um, in, in the Old Testament, they received wisdom or skill. We studied that word in our studying Proverbs, the word chokmah, uh, that's usually translated wisdom. The core meaning of that word is skill. It may refer to a skill at doing something physically. But it also describes a skill at living. With, with the holy Ab and Bezaleel, it described God gave them a supernatural skill at working with the with the wood and working with the metal in building the tabernacle and all the furniture uh, for the tabernacle. You also have judges, and God, the Holy Spirit came upon the judges. You had people like uh, uh, like Jep- Jephthah and Gideon and Samson and later on you had prophets like, like Samuel and Nathan and Gad, and you had kings like, like Saul and David. Saul, the Holy Spirit came upon Saul, and the Holy Spirit left Saul. The Holy Spirit came upon David, and when David sinned in Psalm 51, he prayed to the Father that the Father would not remove the Holy Spirit from him because it was temporary, but it wasn't for their spiritual life. It was for their skill at leadership. Every one of these individuals that had this kind of ministry of the Holy Spirit... Was, was either a general, uh, was a prophet, or a priest, or a king. They had a specific leadership role within the theocracy of Israel, and that's what the Holy Spirit was given to them for, not for their personal spiritual life. So in the New Testament, this is completely different. It's never happened before. Romans 8, 9 says, But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, that the Holy Spirit dwells in each and every one uh, every every believer goes on to say if every anyone does not have the spirit of god he is not his he's not a believer he's not regenerate At regeneration every believer is given god the holy spirit 1 corinthians 3:16 says do you not know that you are the temple of god and that the spirit of god dwells in you now i'm not going to take time to go through all the details of that passage But it's amazing how many uh, theologians will take that in in the context, and I don't agree with this in the context of 1 Corinthians 3, and they will talk about this as being the corporate filling of the Holy Spirit in the body uh, of a group of believers. And they they always say, well, this is based on the fact that this is a plural pronoun. Well, the problem is you have a plural pronoun in 1 Corinthians 6.19, and in 1 Corinthians 6.19 they'll say, well, this is individual. But Romans... 8-9 Eight nine is clearly talking about the individual indwelling of God the Holy Spirit, which everybody uh, agrees on first corinthians six nineteen t- says this is talking about the the uh, individual indwelling of God the Holy Spirit, but it 's using a plural pronoun and I'd, years ago I went back and I started looking at uh, the use of these plural pronouns in the first three chapters. Uh, probably the first six chapters of 1 Corinthians, Paul is talking to a group of believers just as I talk to y'all. And I'll talk to y'all and I'll use a second person plural y'all to talk to you as a group. But, that, but what I'm telling, when I say y'all need to read your Bible, I don't mean y'all need to come together as a group and read your Bible. When I use that second person plural pronoun and say y'all need to read your Bible, I mean each individual of y'all need to be reading your Bible. And that's how Paul is using the plural. He's not using the plural here in a sense of the corporate unity of the particular body. So I find that to be kind of an odd application, but you'll run into it in some of the material that you read, and you just need to be aware of that. Uh, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Here it's clearly talking about your individual physical body has been made a dwelling place, a temple, a dwelling place for God, the Holy Spirit, and there's a whole study we can do on this. Is is the temples throughout the history of mankind? How God dwelt with man, the way He dwelt with man in the Garden of Eden, after the Garden of Eden, had the fact that He left after the flood, that He comes back uh, with a with a dwelling place in the tabernacle, and then in the temple, and then He left the temple before 586 BC when He went to heaven. By the way, anybody know what today is? It's not August 5th. It's not the day before my birthday. It is, but it's not the, that's not the, that's not the answer. I'm not fishing for that. It's not the two days before Katie's birthday. I'm not fishing for that either. What is it? It's Tisha B'Av. The 9th of Av. Av is the month in the Jewish calendar roughly equivalent to July, August. And this is the day, actually according to the Jewish calendar, it began at sunset last night and goes to sunset tonight. And this is the day coincidentally in the plan of God that the first temple was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and the second temple was destroyed by, by Nebuchadnezzar. And it's interesting to uh, look at the history of the Jewish people and realize how many catastrophic things including the fact that they were expelled from from France at one time on Tisha B'Av they were expelled from Spain on Tisha B'Av and uh, there have been many many other things that have happened uh, negatively to uh, the Jews on Tisha B'Av so in uh, modern Judaism it is a time of fasting from sunset last night till sunset tonight for uh, observant Jews but the the God left the temple. It's, it's depicted by Ezekiel. He, he leaves. The Shekinah goes out to the gate, crosses the Kidron Valley, goes to the top of uh, the Mount of Olives and ascends to heaven. And Jesus Christ uh, imitated that when he left, when he ascended from the Mount of Olives. When he re- returns to Jerusalem, he will return to the Mount of Olives. So this whole theme of the temple is very, very important in Scripture and that that our body now, the temple today in the church age, is each individual believer, and that God the Holy Spirit indwells us, and I believe he indwells us to make our body a temple for the indwelling of the Lord Jesus Christ. John fourteen seventeen, Jesus said, The Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you, And will be in you. Again, emphasizing each individual believer. So this to me is the primary distinctive of the church age believer. And it's really important. We talk about the church age being called the church age, emphasizing the church. That's the body of Christ as a universal principle. Not a local church, but the made up of the church, the body of Christ is composed of every believer in Jesus Christ from the day of Pentecost in A.D. 33 until the rapture. And so we talk about that. We distinguish the universal church from the individual manifestations of the body of Christ in terms of, of, of local churches. And so that's one important feature of the church age. Another is we talked about some called the age of grace, And I pointed out, I think last time, that there are some dispensationalists, Charles Ryrie was one, Clarence Larkin was another, who uh, emphasized grace as the, the critical distinguishing feature in this church age. I will differ with them. The critical distinguishing feature is God the Holy Spirit. Now when we get to the beginning of the tribulation, I'll point this out again, but in the, in first, our second Thessalonians chapter two, we're told that the restrainer, who I believe is God the Holy Spirit, will be removed before the uh, tribulation. And I believe that when The rapture of the church occurs, and the church is removed, the Holy Spirit is removed. That's why you won't have a baptism by the Holy Spirit, that's unique to the church. If the church is removed at the rapture, how can you have the church during the tribulation? How can people be baptized by the Holy Spirit during the tribulation? They're no longer going to be in Christ. They're not like Old Testament saints. But they're not going to be like church age saints either. They're going to have a distinct characteristic, as we'll see when we get into the church age. But is this in baptizing and indwelling feature of the Holy Spirit in each and every believer in you that makes you so special and makes you so different and gives you such an incredible asset for living the Christian life? Now, a fourth distinctive of the church age is that we have completed revelation. We have the whole game plan given to us in 66 books of the Bible. Things were different in the apostolic period between 33 and 70 because they didn't have the whole game plan. They only had part of it. And that's why you had apostles and prophets giving new revelation is because nobody had had yet inscripturated or, or, or canonized, organized. The new writings for Christians... And so they needed to hear this in local congregations. They were given new revelation. So we have a completed canon of Scripture. We have the Holy Spirit. We have a completed canon of Scripture. We have everything we could possibly need. And yet you hear this from Christians, I want more. I want all of the Spirit. You already got all the Spirit. I heard that in, in, back in the 80s. I would hear this from some Christians that I just want all the Spirit that God's going to give me. And I would say, you have it. You have it. You just need to learn what what the Holy Spirit's going to teach you in the Word so you really understand what you already have. So we have to understand that we have the completed canon of Scripture, and God's does, not going to give us any more information. He's given us all that we need. The issue, are you willing to trust it? That's the big issue. Are we really willing to trust it and make that the dominant uh, control feature in our life now fifth, we have a supernatural way of life. This is indicated by passages such as Galatians five sixteen and ephesians three sixteen and twenty it 's not like the Old Testament life. The Old Testament spiritual life was based on learning Torah and obeying Torah, but you weren't given any divine assistance. In the church age, we're given divine assistance. We have the baptizing of the Holy Spirit, which broke the power of the sin nature. It never happened to a church age believer. I mean, excuse me. It never happened to an Old Testament believer. No one until the day of Pentecost ever had the power of the sin nature broken. So we have a new reality. If you want to give power, if you say, man, I have such trouble with my sin nature, it's because we give it power. It's volition. So um, for the first time in human history, believers are commanded to live this new supernatural way of life that is dependent upon the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5.16, Paul says, walk by, literally it's by means of the Spirit, walk in dependence upon the Holy Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. In Ephesians 3.16, Paul it concludes the first part of Ephesians 3, which is more of a, an instructional section. He, he closes out with the prayer that he, that God would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his Spirit. Our, our strength comes from that relationship with God the Holy Spirit in the inner man. And then four verses later... He says now he closes that prayer by saying, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us. That's the power of God the Holy Spirit. Now the sixth thing that we have is that makes each and every believer a priest. It makes each and every believer a priest to God. This is seen in passages like first Peter two five and two nine. Every believer is a priest. First Peter 2.5, you also are living stones, building on that foundation, which is Christ. We're built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. That means we have direct access to God. First Peter 2.9, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We are distinct to God. We have a heavenly citizenship. A seventh feature is uh, that we are each a believer, in, as a believer in Christ, we're each an ambassador for Christ. We represent Christ on the earth. This is related to our heavenly citizenship, but it's not an either-or. Pay attention. We are both a heavenly citizen and an earthly citizen of whatever nation we are involved in, and we have a responsibility as members of whatever nation we're in, according to 1 Timothy chapter uh, 2, verses 3 through 5, that we are to pray for our national leaders for peace, for the success of the gospel that we might not be interfered with with the government. Now, that's part of our responsibility as citizens. We have various citizenship responsibilities depending on what nation we're living in. If you were a citizen of Rome, your citizenship responsibilities were different than if you were a citizen of the United States. If you're a citizen of the United States and we have certain responsibilities to be involved as much as we can in the civic or the political process, there's nothing wrong with that. There is a trend that's been present in dispensationalism since Darby that it was somehow sinful to be involved in the secular, uh, secular community. But, but that denies the fact that we, as a, a citizen of Britain or France or Italy or China or Germany or Israel or wherever, that we have certain responsibilities. Just like, let me take a very basic, almost too basic one. You live in a neighborhood. Perhaps you own your house in a neighborhood. And there is a homeowners association. And as part of a landowner in that homeowner's association, you have a responsibility to keep up the external appearance of your of your house. You have to keep the grass mowed. You have to keep it uh, appropriately landscaped. Uh, you're not going to let the paint peel or uh, other problems like that. And if you do, eventually you may have somebody from the homeowner's association knock on your door and say, well, you're not living up to your responsibility as a homeowner here. And so you go, you may have one of several responses. You may get upset with them. That would not be appropriate. You may go back into the house and say, well, I'm going to pray that the landscaping will get taken care of. And, and that's a good thing to do. We pray about a lot of things. But it doesn't stop with prayer because we recognize that there's two aspects to this. There is an aspect where we trust in God, we take our cares before him, and we pray for them, but we don't stop there unless we want to be irresponsible. Then we have to go out and we have to put gas in the lawnmower and we have to start the lawnmower, we have to find a landscaper and we pay them, but somebody has to go out and actually do something. When it comes to politics, one of the great uh, logical fallacies I often hear from believers is I'm going to pray for it, but I'm not going to get involved politically. That's like saying I'm going to pray for my grass to get cut, but I'm not going to start the lawnmower. How would you like it if I just said every morning I'm going to get up and I'm going to pray that that for my message for my Bible class? but I never opened my text, I never opened a theology book, I never studied, I just prayed. Well, you would say that was irresponsible. Well, that is how it works with our citizenship. We need to be involved. Now, not everybody can be involved. We have some people in this congregation who are really involved in different aspects of the political process. We have others who are not. Unfortunately, we live in a world today where many people in our country, myself included, have not been involved for many decades simply because we've been too busy enjoying the wonderful blessings of our freedom. But let me warn you, this this country is in serious trouble. Last night I had uh, Connie send out the notification from the Houston Area Pastors Council related to what just happened with the Houston City Council. And we all were, remember, just a month or so ago, we were signing the petition for a referendum on the uh, HERO Act the, that, that uh, was foisted upon us by Houston City Council. And there were 50,000 signatures that were collected. Before they turned them in, uh, the, the organizations that were involved in collecting those signatures had a legal counsel that validated 31,000 of those signatures. All that was needed was seventeen thousand. In violation, in, in, a, in, in a violation of the city council, in terms of three different procedures, the city council, or, or the, 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 the mayor announced that these were invalidated because there were not enough legitimate signatures. This means that the mayor is exercising her dictatorial powers. Of course, in my opinion, this is what happens when anybody elects a Democrat or a progressive to office. They trash the law. They trash the Constitution because we don't live in an era of liberals of 20 or 30 years ago. We live in a different world where liberals today do not have a respect. Most of them do not have a respect for the rule of law, and they think they can just run over it. For What happened with the city council, according to the city charter, the city secretary is to validate or invalidate uh, the signatures, and then report to the city council. What happened was the, the the secretary gave the information and according to the email I sent out last night, uh, Dave Welch stated that at, at one point the city secretary actually said that she validated the signatures, but then she gave them to the city treasurer. There's nothing said about that in the city council. She gave them to the city treasurer. The city treasurer then invalidated enough to where there weren't, uh, there had to be 17,200 signatures, to where there weren't 17,200 signatures, so that meant they wouldn't have to call a referendum. Then the city treasurer reported that to the mayor, and then the mayor reported that to the press. According to the city charter, the city secretary is to report the information within 30 days to the city council. When the mayor presented it to the to the press, it still it was past, just an hour or so past the deadline for those 30 days, and it had still not been officially reported to the city council. So it's just a trashing of the law and procedure. But we're going to see a lot of this, and let me warn you, It's going to get a whole lot worse, and we're not going to win this battle unless there is a remarkable shift in the volition of this nation. But if things continue to the way they are, let me tell you, the battle lines are drawn. The government is targeting Christians, and it's going to get worse. And if you're not ready in terms of your spiritual life, then it will be miserable, and it will be horrible because—and I'm not saying how bad it's going to get— but it is we've seen situations in just the last year or two where uh the IRS has been targeting conservative Christian organizations. There was a ruling that was uh reached an agreement that was reached between an atheist organization in Wisconsin uh a couple of months ago where they had filed suit against the IRS because they wanted the IRS to investigate churches and pastors and to monitor their sermons to make sure they were not crossing the line in terms of of, uh, promoting any political views. And so in order to avoid this whole lawsuit going all the way to its conclusion, the IRS agreed to with, to settle this and their agreement was that the IRS would begin monitoring the sermons and uh, of pastors and monitoring the activities of churches specifically to make sure that they were not uh going too far in talking about the activities related to uh, homosexuals lesbians and uh uh transgenders and in relation to birth control and obamacare so this is now what is happening this is just the beginning folks and we need to recognize that if you are not getting serious about your spiritual life this is going to unravel i believe i cannot believe how far we've gone the last 10 years and it's not going up ever you go back 30 years we've been on a negative trajectory in terms of the encroachment of the federal government on the individual rights of the citizens of this country. And we need to do whatever we can to be involved in whatever way we can, even if it. you say, well, you know, it's going to end up that way. We can't be defeatists. You can't win a battle by, by predicting at the beginning. What if George Washington had done that? It looked like they were going to lose the American War for Independence until they won it. <laughs> until the day that Cornwallis surrendered, it looked like they were going to lose... And it would all be over with. So we have to trust in God, keep our powder dry, metaphorically, and we need to uh, keep focused on our spiritual life. We have a dual citizenship, a citizenship in heaven to represent the Lord Jesus Christ continuously in every area of our life. Uh, to express his grace, his love, and to communicate the gospel uh, when we can and when it's appropriate. And part of that includes carrying out our citizenship responsibilities. 2 Corinthians five eighteen through 20 states, Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us, This is part of what we have as church-age believers We delegated to us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. That ministry of reconciliation is is a way of talking about evangelism, to tell people that Christ, God was in Christ reconciling the the, the world to himself. Now, what we tell people in essence when we give them the gospel is that they need to be reconciled to God. How? By believing in Christ. So he concludes in verse 20 by saying, Now then we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf be reconciled to God. So this is our responsibility as believers. We are each and every one of us an ambassador for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the next thing that we're going to talk about is the unique spiritual life of the church age. And rather than going into that, because this gets involved in a number of different issues, and I want to c- cover that in one uh, one uh, consistent whole, uh, we'll wait and begin with the unique spiritual life of the church age believer next time. Anybody have any questions? Good times, Frank. Uh, my question is with... Uh... Uh, difference between the Old Testament and the tribulation is their relationship to uh, supernatural events with with the fact that we have the Holy Spirit and the scripture also because in the Old Testament there was a lot of overt supernatural events and in tribulation was a lot of over uh, supernatural events. So is there a correlation between that? Okay, what Franklin's asking, is there a a correlation between uh, the supernatural events? In the Old Testament, there seem to be a lot of supernatural events. There really aren't. There are a few. They tend to be located around the Exodus period. You had miracles. You have a couple of of, uh, theophanies in the period of the Judges. Uh, You have another uh, period where there are a number of miracles that take place in the northern kingdom, in the ministry of Elijah and Elisha, uh, you have a couple of others later on, you, nothing between the, the, the testaments. You have this other outbreak of some supernatural things when Christ is on the earth, and during the establishment of the church in Acts, we see miracles, casting out demons, things like that, and then there's there's nothing. Uh, no indication of that uh, in terms of the instruction in in the uh, uh, New, New Testament epistles. Uh, if we believe the Bible is sufficient, here's an argument. You read my book on spiritual warfare. Uh, we develop it there very very much. But if the Bible is sufficient, which means it tells us everything we need to know about the spiritual life, that's pr- major premise. Minor premise: the New Testament books. The epistles are written specifically to tell us about the mystery doctrine of the church age, the spiritual life of the church age believer. There's no place else in the New Testament that talks about the spiritual life of the church age believer. So the minor premise is that the the the, the uh, New Testament epistles tell us everything we need to know about the, the spiritual life of the church age. The conclusion is that because the epistles say nothing, nothing about demon possession, or the only thing they say about miracles is that they're signs of the apostles in, in 1 Corinthians 12, 12. I'm 2 Corinthians 12, 12, they're signs of the apostles. That the silence is deafening. If supernatural events like miracles, signs and wonders, speaking in tongues, uh, casting out demons, things like this, were to be the normative part of the church, life of the church-age believer, then why are they totally ignored, not even mentioned? There's a deafening silence in the epistles. And the reason is, is because God's given us a completed canon. He said, now you have everything, go live on the basis. You don't need, in the Old Testament period, there was, they didn't have a completed canon. In the Gospels, they didn't have a completed canon. In Acts, they didn't have a completed canon. So they needed ongoing revelation, and these other activities were taking place uh, during a period of an incomplete canon. Now, then you have the church age. The church age, you have a complete canon the filling of the Holy Spirit. Just rely upon that, trust in God, and move forward. Trust in what the Word says, not in whatever you seem to think might be going on around you. And then you get into the tribulation period. Well, one of the reasons you have the outbreak of a lot of demonic activity and, and miracles is because you have direct satanic involvement, the Antichrist, is going to deceive people through pseudo miracles etc, et and then halfway through the tribulation period, the demons are cast out of heaven to the earth, and they 're going to be visibly manifested up, upon the earth and it gets to be it 's going to be really weird when you can go back and listen to what I taught in the second half of revelation on that, but in, and, and from about revelation twelve and thirteen on you see that there is definitely a physical, visible aspect to the angelic conflict, to the angels, both holy, and, both the elect and the fallen, during that second half of the tribulation period. Because at the end of the tribulation, all of God's sentient creatures, the angels, the demons, human beings, are all brought to final judgment uh, at the Battle of Armageddon, all the rebellious ones. Okay, does that help answer your question? You've got to look at all of this in terms of the overall scope of, of, of Scripture. Price. We have, a, we have a question from Barry in, in West, uh, Winston, Salem, North Carolina. <clears throat> Does the church, Bride of Christ, ever into perichoresis, or is that relationship only between the Trinity? I, it's only between the Trinity. Because perichoresis, this is a Greek word that talks about the interpen, inter, interpenetration, and what you have, when Jesus, Jesus says, for example, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, because there's such a close identity. We emphasize so often the distinction of the persons of the Trinity that sometimes we lose the emphasis on the absolute unity of the Trinity so that when Jesus does something, the Father does it also, and the Spirit does it. There is a unity there of, of their being. But there's also a distinction in their person; they have different roles. But in perichoresis, there's that unity. So, no, the church doesn't enter into that because we're finite beings. That has to do with the what have to do with the uh, uh, eternality and and uh, the nature of deity. Anything else? Anybody else? Okay, let's uh, let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to just reflect upon the significance. Of the church in the church age, and of our the unique assets that you have given us, and the new unique relationship that you have given us to our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the Father, and to the Holy Spirit, and each one and the ministries that they have, and all the assets we have as those who are indwelt by the Spirit and the Son, and as well as the Father, and also by the fact that we have a completed canon of Scripture. And we pray that you would continue to help us think through these things and to be uh, stimulated to pursue spiritual maturity as we come to understand the, the breadth and the depth of all that we have in Christ. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.